Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Palin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijang, a culture writer and critic. And this week we're discussing The Worst Person in the World and The After Party, a film and a series about kind of sort of looking back and moving forward. Oof. Love to get deep <laughs> in our connective tissue. But yeah, you're right. You're definitely, that's basically it. Thank you for the validation. Yeah, absolutely. How's your week been? How's your two weeks been? Bloody hell, I've missed you. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Been it's, I've been okay. I drove to, to see the worst person in the world. I made a oh nice little God. trip to the nearest town with like a sort of, I guess you could call it an indie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of playing a theater and. You know, enjoyed a nice day. I went to Ikea. I uh, assembled a, a new desk. I, I got a new mattress. You know, a bunch of different things. Just like uh, little little things that add up to some feeling of home or life improvement. So, you know, it hasn't been bad. Look at you doing life right. <laughs> You're doing it. My my week has been great. Yeah. I, I got back from Mexico City. Uh, Mexico City was fantastic. Mm. 100% 10 out of 10. No notes. Love it. Love it so much. Uh, the food was incredible. Obviously, did not have nearly enough tacos as I should have done, <laughs> uh, but ate good all the same. So what did you watch for this week, Pellin? So to honor the fact that you drove out an hour to watch this, <laughs> I watched The Worst Person in the World back, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago when it premiered at Lincoln Center out in New York. And... Um, you know, many critics had already seen it and had already hyped it up before, you know, before the theater release started, which is when I started watching it. So I was super excited. I'm also a big fan of Joachim Trier, who is the director of this movie. So just a little bit of background. This film has been nominated for two Oscars, one Best International Feature for the country of Norway and uh, for Best Original Screenplay, which I was really happy about. Um, I, I think it really deserves that nomination. Joachim Trier co-wrote this with his longtime writing partner, Eskil Vogt. And The Worst Person in the World is basically the third chapter of Trier's kind of loose Oslo trilogy. Mm. Uh, the other two films being Reprise in 2006 and Oslo 31st of August 2011. So... Now that you've watched this, Jenny, mm -hmm. I really recommend going back and doing one and two. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, like, take a break between them because Oslo, 31st of August, is really heavy. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Massive trigger warning for uh -oh. anybody that does want to watch it. All right. uh, it is about addiction and it is about depression. So those three films are all films that are basically like character work within the city of Oslo, hence Oslo Trilogy. So... For The Worst Person in the World, Tria focuses on Yuli, aka Julie, following her life basically from her early 20s until her early 30s. And it's kind of, the format is different. It's split into 12 chapters that demarcate moments in Julie's life, uh, where we see kind of her indecisiveness with, in regards to her career, her love life, her stance on motherhood. And Julie is played by Renata Rinsve, and she won actually the Best Actress for this performance at Cannes. Mm. She is joined by Anders Danielson Lee, who, if you have seen the other two films of the Oslo trilogy, he's like he's worked with Tria, so like for those two films as well. He plays Axel, who is Julie's um, love interest, basically one of her love interests. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of like the basic premise of it. Mm -hmm. 
I want to hear your thoughts on this film. <laughs> like, I've been waiting for so long to hear your thoughts on this film. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think we are going to have one of those rare but interesting moments where we feel a little bit differently about <gasps> work. <laughs> um, oh my god. Okay, well, okay. I'll s- back up, back up, back okay, up. Okay, okay. Talk me through it. Yeah. I went into this with kind of high expectations because I mm. I know you loved it. I know most critics across the board have also loved it. Like there have been like rave reviews of this. There are maybe only just like one or two dissent interviews. I think among like the Richard Brody. Richard Brody. I uh, yes, <laughs> I think he's specifically Richard Brody of the uh, New Yorker, yeah. and <sighs> love his curmudgeon ass, but. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I had like kind of high expectations. I think it was a fine to decent film. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it was terrible. I don't think mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, a waste of time for me to watch it or anything like that. I'm, I'm glad right. I saw it. I just don't personally like, uh, agree with like the basic, like, uh, universal rave reviews mm-hmm. and praise for this because I think it's, yeah. It's a fine film, and I I think that is, like, sufficient. But, yeah, I don't know. That's, like, my top-line summary. No, but... that's fair. That's fair. So we yeah, might no. we might have some uh, moments of disagreement throughout this, this well, segment. Well, let me see if I can convince you by the end of this. Okay. Well, it's fine. I'm not hurt by it. I totally get it. You know, I, it, we'll probably talk about this later, but I feel like with Drive My Car, that's kind of how I feel about it too, because that's also another film that has rave reviews that I thought was literally just fine. Yeah, um, I'm excited to so watch that to see if we uh, sync up or disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> don't, make me, don't make me nervous. Okay, so the, I think getting into the reason why I think people do like it, mm-hmm. and obviously like the reason why I like it, there is an element of relatability that this film really taps into and with the character of julie she is certainly indecisive and Mm. even in the first chapter which is basically kind of speed walking you through like her early 20s her university student days Mm -hmm. where she just kind of goes from one degree to the next she's good at everything so it's not that she sucks at anything it's just that she doesn't really know what her life's purpose is at that age Mm -hmm. which uh same I think watching Julie just be able to kind of flip back and forth is part of it. Like the film kind of builds this foundation where you feel a little bit annoyed by the fact that she can't just settle down and figure out what the fuck she wants. Yeah. But her, but her consistency in it mm-hmm. by the, by the end of the film and even halfway through the film, to me, it felt like, oh, she's just acting on the impulses that I have. Mm-hmm. Or would have that I am too scared to act on. And so like watching her character go from degree to degree uh, from one man to the next Mm -hmm. and be obviously I think we've talked about motherhood and my unsureness of it. Mm -hmm. Watching her uncertainty about motherhood especially was like sometimes there's no resolution. And I think that that feeling of like just watching this character navigate life in such an uncertain way was almost like staring at everything that you're worried about with yourself and your own indecisiveness and I think that is like that was the strength of this film that was like the universal truth that I think that a lot of people tapped into and like bear in mind like Joachim Trier and his co-writer vote I think they're in the early 40s mm-hmm. so it appeals to a lot of like people are around our age like late 20s all the way up until like early 40s of like what is my life what am i doing with it 
and like watching this character i just yeah like i I came out of it feeling like i identify with her so much Mm -hmm. when you strip me back and i think when you strip most people back we are all kind of that person that just doesn't know where the fuck their life is going (laughs) and i think that's been the appeal i think like especially like i don't know maybe like two years being in a pandemic and like really having time to think about it uh has made people feel like more acutely aware of that question Mm -hmm. and then watching this film has just made it (laughs) more pointed yeah um i don't know what do you think do you think that's why it's popular I don't, i'm not sure if it's kind of like reading the review that's kind of the feeling that i'm getting yeah i mean i i can definitely see that and i like have no issue with like that aspect of it like the the restlessness mm-hmm. the sort of uh not sure which path to take or where to go or what kind of decisions to even make in mm-hmm. quote-unquote adulthood um i think like some of where my issue or or what i like was not so fond of was like how it was executed through through mm. Julie's character. Like, mm. specifically beyond, like, this kind of, uh, you know, wishy-washiness or, like, you know, Axel said at one point, you, you, you know, you always run when things get hard. Um, yeah. She just didn't have that many defining characteristics to me and was, like, surprisingly mm. a bit of a blank slate. Like, not we didn't really get that much of her interiority beyond some, like, a... Okay, she is a, a feminist. Um, like, she likes to complicate things a little bit. She's a little bit messy. Um, mm. But beyond that, like, there, I didn't really get a sense of who she is, like, what what she like, what are, what's her opinion, like, what values does she have? Like, as a character, she is a bit of a, a blank slate that maybe, maybe that's the point, I guess, like, for the audience to project their own uh, feelings and desires onto, but... I just yeah, didn't do enough yeah. for me character wise. Yeah, no, I I get that. I think a part maybe this is just me projecting, like you said, but a part of me felt like that was the point of her being a little bit not quite rooted in exactly who she is. I think that speaks to maybe why she doesn't know how to make a decision for herself that feels like permanent or feels like a little bit more long lasting. Mm-hmm. Definitely, the projection is there. Don't get me wrong; like she is a vessel for us to kind of pour ourselves into and then she pours herself into us um and this like symbiotic relationship i guess is formed especially from woman to woman i will say in the ozo trilogy this is the first time yeah it's a female protagonist i could so, i could see that right you know the way that he makes her have this like little uh speech about basically women's rights and equality at the cabin mm-hmm. her thoughts on like blowjobs and the age of me too Uh, Like, I'm sure, like, real women can have these opinions, they can have these thoughts, but it felt a little bit, uh, it did feel like, like, what a man thinks, like, a kind of sexy, Mm. like, feminist uh, woman would would think of. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting, because I I do think there is, like, I'm assuming that Tria and Vo, I know that they've been talking to women in their life about this. But I didn't really mind it too much in terms of like it, it did seem believable to me. It didn't. It didn't really feel like a gazy way of writing a female character. Mm-hmm. I actually liked how she didn't really fit into like one firm box of like this is she is so sure of the type of woman that she is and what kind of like sex she likes and what kind of like mother she wants to be. I like the in betweenness of it because I I think in an attempt to write female characters even as women like as someone that writes female characters 
basically exclusively like protagonists it's hard to write someone that is so sure of themselves because it's a bit boring to me yeah i mean you don't want to make someone didactic in any way or like uh, yeah so set in stone and in terms of yeah yeah i i totally get that um but just not did not like how this particular i guess no no i I totally get it no, I totally get it. I think my critique was I didn't really see Julie have that many female friends and how yes, she talks with her that. female friends. Mm-hmm. In Tria's other films, male friendship, male conversation is so predominantly featured. Mm-hmm. And it's because he knows what it's like, both from the more comedic angle to the more serious side of things, like what it's like yeah. to have those types of conversations. Yeah. And this was the point in which him and Vote you could tell with two men yeah. writing a Yeah, I, I would have loved if she yeah. had more relationships on that front fleshed out here. Yeah, we really didn't get that. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like the different chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, how did you feel about the chapter format? I think the chapter format worked in terms of it loosely plotting out like the arc of her life in a certain time mm-hmm. period, but also giving it this set structure in which like they can play a little bit looser. Like some of the chapters are really just yeah. like vignettes, more or less. They don't bear mm-hmm. that much significance plot wise, or you know, it it, it gives them the f- structured freedom to be looser within the, those yeah. confines. So I thought yeah. it it worked in this sense, but I did think some of the chapters were like when I was watching it because. I don't know. I was like, some of these chapters, I don't really care what's happening in it. Like, I, right. there's some of them felt like a little bit more uh, the slice of lifestyle, which is a genre mm. that I like a lot. Um, yeah. But in terms of this, I was just like, hmm, let's, uh, okay, I see they're, they're high in shrooms. I get it. All right. <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. But did you, like, for me, I think uh, the chapters that really did stand out mm-hmm. um, were. The others, which is when Julian Axel go on vacation with his friends, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and that fucking hell. Like, talk about accuracy. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where like other people are fighting uh, while while everybody's on vacation or trying to have a good time. And yeah, like, weird tension in the air. Yeah, um, that was good, and also like seeing how she, yeah, basically being the lone twenty-something-year-old in a room full of uh, people. Yeah, in like thirty, late thirties to forties. Yeah, yeah, and then. I really liked cheating, mm-hmm. which yeah, uh, is self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. You know, we've talked about on-screen chemistry being fucking weak as shit for such a long time, but Julian Ivand, who is the other love interest in this, um, is played by Herbert Nordrum. They meet at a random party. It just follows like what fo- that scene that follows is just one of the more like heartwarming on-screen chemistry that i've seen in a while like it re- they really sell it to you like they really make you feel like oh like julie would definitely be into this guy yeah and the fact that these two people have kind of met at a point in their lives where they're kind of in the same place and they you know they they, they say that they're not cheating and they're doing things that they're not cheating with they're, they're obviously emotionally yeah i thought that was a good chapter too especially like yeah it captured this kind of real looseness of feeling of basically like serendipity like stumbling upon this yeah. uh, party staying up all night with this stranger yeah. while this uh everyone else around you is like still dancing and drinking and yeah a real feeling of like kind of slightly buzzed looseness yeah and it's like that that lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. moment that you have with a person how much power that has over you when it comes at you at a time where you are uninspired or feeling low like it was just very accurate in terms of like how 
things like this happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, even though, like, you know, as an audience member, you're watching it thinking, like, oh, honey, it's just, that's just a one night thing. <laughs> like, that, that just, that, that's it. It's kind of like done. And it, and just a quick shout out to, the fart that she lets out after she pees um in that scene i'm sorry for this spoiler but it's fantastic it's one of the best things ever and and again talk about accuracy we love to see a little fart after you pee because <laughs> it's what we do as women it's what we do um but i think my favorite chapter by far is definitely positive which comes a little bit later on in the film mm-hmm. um is this the first time you're watching anders uh anders lee perform by the way in a film I'm yeah just double checking yeah yeah so it is. he's really good <laughs> he's really good um there's a reason why him and tria have such a close relationship um mm. as director and actor you could say he's you know he's the guy that he he's worked with the most mm-hmm. interesting fact anders is a general practitioner in real life so he's a doctor whoa yeah oh my god um, i'm on the wikipedia norwegian actor musician and medical doctor yeah dude can you imagine just being like oh i'm gonna, gonna go for my annual checkup and going <laughs> and it's just like this norwegian actor fantastic like that guy like honestly i watched the trilogy a little bit out of order i watched oslo 31st august first um and then worst person in the world and then reprise he just has a way of performing melancholy and performing like deep rooted sadness in a way that I haven't really seen that many actors be able to do. Mm. Um, he's fantastic. And, yeah. you know, I, again, don't want to spoil it, but it is bad news for him mm-hmm. <laughs> for, and his character. The way that he talks about life and the way that he talks about it from the perspective of someone that is reaching the end of it mm-hmm. uh, is some of the best writing about that subject just from someone talking in a really fucking long time like it's so intimate it is so naked in its honesty like this is the this is the part where i think it really deserves the original screenplay award because you could tell so so like from the panel uh someone asked tria like how him and vote thought up the idea for this film and he was Mm -hmm. like well we just kind of get in a room and we start talking about what's bothering us in general about life and then like from that something is formed and this Mm. is i think this really uh encapsulates that the film itself encapsulates it don't get me wrong but this this part this is the uncut part of the worst person in the world which which is that (laughs) existential question of what have i done with my life and if all i can do is look and that the line oh my god jenny the line where he talks about like he doesn't have the luxury of looking forward anymore. Yeah. So all he can do yeah. is look back. Yeah, that I mean, was a real it, memorable dude, moment. <laughs> everybody in that movie theater was crying. <laughs> everybody in that movie theater was crying. There's like two scenes where he just says basically what everybody is afraid of, just out loud on a screen. Even though like Julie's indecisiveness is something that I connected with the most, when it comes down to like what I will remember of this film like the first scene that's going to come to my mind is them on that bench that outside the hospital you know talking about culture being passed around on, with objects you know like oh. how that's how it used to be and now that's that's not what you do anymore and like how all he can do is look back and these are the things that will haunt me basically because it's haunting because we're all terrified of it we're all terrified of facing you know i guess we've given it away but facing death and like facing 
what our lives have amounted to, you know? Um, yeah. So I it, think, yeah. It's a real emotional moment. And I do think like Axel really provides the emotional heart of this, mm-hmm. this film in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah you can definitely sure. sense the kind of uh, existential anxiety playing out on screen. Yeah, for sure. I think the final thing that I want to say about this film in terms of why I like it, and I think this might kind of circle back as to like why you might think it's just fine. You know, the 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 critic feedback has been very much like it's incredible, it's so moving. So you kind of go into it thinking that it's going to be like a really heavy drama and something that kind of tells you pr- something profound. But it this isn't that film and not to like give a little bit of context, but when when you think of Trier's films, especially like there is always, always comedy, joy, lightheartedness. Um, and I think the strength of this film, the biggest strength of this film is the way that it balances that tonal shift. That is the most expertly done part of this film. Like the way that it goes from like really funny moments to really deep moments. Like you feel it all, you feel everything. This is this is Trier's strength. This is the thing that he really kind of knows how to square in on. I think the, the thing that stands out some, the most to me about that is that it kind of feels like a real representation of like life itself, about how it's never just one or the other. It's always both. You're never sure. And, you know, I know that we watch films to like get the clear answers that we need sometimes, but like this is the kind of film that I like. This is extremely my shit. And I think that's why... Finding the truth in basically the seemingly mundane parts of life, shining a light on that and making the audience kind of feel uh, more seen in the thoughts that they have alone, whether it's like the fears, the insecurities that we carry with us basically day in and day out. Like life is literally just, you just put one foot in front of the other and hope that you're wearing the right shoes. Like that's basically it. And I think this kind of, this film really tackles that and kind of faces that. have you ever watched Francis Ha? Yeah, I'm not a fan of Francis Ha either. <laughs> so, so there we go. Okay, yeah. so it's tracking now. Okay, so I fucking love Francis Ha. <laughs> so there's a lot of similarity between those two films of just someone trying to navigate life and, and not really having it all together. And I'm curious to see how our listeners feel about this film. I highly recommend watching this film. It is in theaters right now, like Jenny mentioned, in yeah. mostly independent theaters, unfortunately. But I think it, it, is, it is like making its way towards a more mainstream plane. Yeah, hopefully. Like, I think right the Oscar too. nominations might have helped that out a little bit. But it is a Neon production and Neon does have a deal with Hulu. So I do foresee it being on Hulu eventually. You guessed it, more movie recommendations. This episode is brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. So as you may already know, Movie premieres a new film every day, so you can always find something good to check out, whether that's an award-winning classic or a festival fresh gem. Ooh, Movie picks <laughs> are hand-curated, so you'll be able to stream the best of cinema anytime, anywhere. And for me, I'm going to recommend Martin Eden, which is Pietro Marcello's film that's based on the 1909 novel by Jack London. This time it's set in Italy and it's about class and self-education. So, yeah. How about you? I am going to check out The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet. Uh, So this is directed by Anna Katz. This is an Argentinian absurdist drama. It premiered at Sundance in 2021 
And mm. on movie, it's listed under new auteurs. So Sweet. excited to check that out. And everyone else, you can try movie for free for 30 whole days at movie.com slash criticism is dead. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash criticism is dead for a whole month of great cinema for free. All right, so I'm moving away from Norway. <laughs> uh, what did you watch this week, Jenny? I watched The After Party, which is on Apple TV+. So this is a murder mystery comedy series. It's by Christopher Miller, who uh, you might know from his work with Philip Anderson Lord. They did 21 Jump Street, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, uh, you know, a lot of stuff. Like, they, they have a pretty uh, far-ranging body of work. Yeah. So this series is about a murder that takes place during the after party of a 15 year high school reunion. And all these old classmates have to give their accounts of what happened, not just that night, but like everything leading up to that night uh, mm -hmm. to a detective. And just a note, like this uh, is going to wrap up on March 4th, uh, this upcoming Friday. So mm -hmm. our discussion currently is going to cover the first seven episodes. So no huge spoilers for like, the last one or who did it because we don't know yet either yeah i mean that yeah they're obviously saving the who done it for the very last yeah um, yeah, yeah classic um so how this series works currently is that each episode is named after the character who's giving their own version of what happened and each character has you know a different take on what happened sort of affected by their own biases you know the their their memory um and like it's explicitly said, like, the tendency for people to consider themselves the star of their own story or movies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, actually, like, along that thought, each episode is also done in the style of a different film genre. Yeah. Like, a rom-com, action, uh, thriller, stuff like that. Uh, and so, Miller was inspired by Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, again. Like, of course, of course. And thinking, again, of our discussion about Last Duel, but, like, basically how each person retelling their story they have a different perspective of the same event mm -hmm. so it's like a, a conceit that i think works really well with tv but yeah how far along are you pellin and how are you finding it so far um i'm caught up until episode seven okay nice yeah i am enjoying it just fine mm -hmm. i think my favorite part is the way that it, de it definitely does do different genres of film uh, <laughs> with each character there are certain things that I really like about it and certain things that feel a little bit tedious to me. Yes. So, yeah. I would I would agree with yeah. that. And I think that's like in an unfortunate byproduct, like necessary byproduct yeah. of this format that they wanted to do. Yeah. Um, especially I'll say like some perspectives or episodes are stronger than others. Yes. Um, but I think like a real weakness of this is that the after party sort of jumps right in at the beginning with some of the weaker mm -hmm. episodes. Mm -hmm. So I think especially I would understand if some people like were not convinced to keep going from the first few episodes. Yeah. I'll say like it took me until episode five, the high school uh, episode that I really started to dig the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just like something about how they played with that genre early aughts slash like uh, 2010s, like nostalgia aspect of it. I thought it was like pretty true to American high school life in a kind of like funny and ton in cheek way. Yeah. And I like remember I was watching this and I, 
literally started like laughing out loud when two characters in that episode like started fighting each other in like the most idiotic way possible yeah it was pretty great so it was only there that i really started to get into this which is it's asking for a lot out of an eight episode series to get to the halfway mark to be able to really start to enjoy it so i get it it's not that great if the format really makes it that way so for me the reason why i I started watching this was actually i watched the trailer and i watched i saw the cast and i was like oh bitch i'm in like incredible cast like honestly no one a-list really apart from i guess dave franco but like just all the supporting characters of every comedy show that you've watched in the last like five years that really stood out to you are all in this um, sorry, I said Dave Franco, also Tiffany Haddish, A-list for sure. But like everybody yeah. else is just your faves from all your other comedy half hours. You know? Yeah, they're kind of like the breakout characters, yeah. um, the comedy fans dream cast yeah, of supporting which characters. It, it, it totally appealed to me and I'm watching it basically to support them because yeah. like, Zoe Chow is one of my favorite, favorite comedy actors of recent memory if Mm. you watch and not even comedy like just generally such a great actress she was on love life season one and she was my favorite out of like the Mm. out of all the performances she really kind of stood out to me so i'm really happy to see her in this obviously alana glazer we love her period yeah Uh, all broad Mm -hmm. city fans but also like sam richardson too like what a sweetheart oh, so glad to see him outside of veep really i know i know i think like one once again the format can kind of like mm, pose a little bit of a barrier here, which again, like some of these characters, I think don't really truly come to life until it gets to their episode. Like you see them, their personality and their, I don't know, their desires and their motives and everything come to life in their episode. So again, it's, it's kind of like a hard thing where it's, uh, it has these limitations imposed by this, perspective by perspective format but yeah i agree there are like some really good names in here and and very charming across the board like everyone's trying i think really hard to do the most with what they got do you have any favorite characters or performances so far in this um two people i love ike barinholtz as brett Mm. i don't know whether it's because i'm not american but if you were if you were to be like (laughs) show me a dumb american (laughs) white guy uh, he does such a good job of like performing that person. So love him. I think he's yeah. fantastic. And also yeah. Jamie Dimitriou, uh, who plays oh, Walt, yeah. I think. Yes, the very uh, often ignored and neglected Walt. Yes. First of all, I love his character. <laughs> it's just like the yes, running joke too. of his character is fantastic. Uh, I'm a huge Jamie Dimitriou fan period um if you have hbo max i highly recommend watching staff let's flats which is his series mm. and you might recognize him from fleabag he's the guy with the massive tooth on the bus um but he is yeah. he's actually he does not have that tooth in real life he's actually really handsome but the fact that you just see this uh british guy <laughs> just playing this he his character just cracks me up so much it's it's so good it's so um, good in his episode, again, that's the episode I like. It's the funniest Really started one. to yeah, like this series. It's, it's the, the funniest. funniest and yeah, and the fact like it's not even named after his character. They just call it high school because no one remembers. No one his remembers name, his just name or who he is. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what about you? Who are your favorite characters? So I I am appreciating like everyone. I think Ben Schwartz as Jasper. Ben Schwartz is just like doing what he does almost all the time, like across the board. But he is always yeah. so 
exuberant and charming in that role that I can't help but like it. Uh, he really brings a lot of yeah, you know, charisma and like spunk in that way. He's uh, um, I, I also love him too, but he really reminds me of like a budget Andrew be, Andrew Garfield. Yeah, he really reminds me of like a budget <laughs> Andrew Garfield for sure. Uh, I'm sure he'd be flattered. I, 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 I yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd love to be compared to Andrew Garfield if I was a guy. Um, mm-hmm. Little nerdy cutie. <laughs> Yeah, is there, is there anyone else that's sticking out to you also? Sam Richardson as Anik is given like <laughs> kind of a tough job. Like it, yeah. he's he's the the protagonist ostensibly of this ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. Um each interpretation like each episode portrays him slightly differently i think which is really smart yeah because they are filtered through the eyes of different characters i think he's doing a really solid job like he's funny when he needs to be he is awkward and nerdy also in other people's interpretations he's like sneaky and kind of sullen and uh, he's like showing that he has quite a bit of range and could play a leading uh guy basically yeah for sure for sure yeah um and i would also shout out tiffany haddish she is Basically playing it with her customary style, which is, like, kind of broad sometimes, but she's really trying her hardest. Like, she, I think she's, like, actually going for it in every single line of dialogue. And the latest episode seven with the police procedural sort of genre. Yeah, oh my take, god, that flashback was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I think she she's really showing, like, how she is such kind of, like, a, a naturally charismatic and funny person. Yeah and performer and yeah yeah, i like that episode that it gave her this room to stretch out because again like from everything leading up to this you kind of only see her is this kind of incompetent detective role so it it needs a little bit of time to show her truly in her element yeah i mean that's part of it like with the you know current day scenes where she's interviewing each character Mm -hmm. i couldn't tell if because her line reads are they read a little bit cold to me yeah. When she's asking mm-hmm. questions. It's like a confusing sort of tone. Yeah. Because the show like is kind of dancing between comedy, satire. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like the more realistic elements, I think. So sometimes tonally to- like yeah, what happens yeah. is a little confusing here. Yeah, for sure. I want to give a, a shout out to Dave Franco for just oh, being yes. the best at playing that guy. Like he's been in the many films douche. where he's playing that guy. Yeah. He's in his fucking element with this. Um I'm a little disappointed by Alana Glazer's uh Me too. character. I feel like she could have She's been not more. But she's not given any funny material. That's what I mean. Uh, That's what I mean. She could have been given more because she's capable. I know. But I, I do like it in general. It reminds me of Only Murders in the Building, mm-hmm. which we talked about before. Yeah. And I also liked, um, you know, neither of them are like, wow, the best thing I've seen in the world. But they're like very much sort of enjoyable, comedic murder mysteries, yeah. which is this genre that I'm really into. There is a Lit Hub piece by this writer, Olivia Rutigliano, who calls this sort of genre like the the millennial whodunit basically she says it's like yeah with podcasts and tv and movies and true crime and stuff like these these shows like only murders in the building the after party even search party which which i haven't seen yet they all try to have this this framework of trying to solve a murder as this life-changing event yeah this like comedic life-changing event it is like the characters staging their own production in a way, like especially Only Murders in the Building. You saw it play out in the podcast format, yeah. a satirization of the true crime genre. Here, it's like kind of more of a clue format, but again, a little bit playing on the, the edge of a satire. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a, I'm a fan of those kind of things. Yeah, I, they're not, they're not fantastic. They're not like 
perfect masterpieces, like uh, auteur masterpieces, but I think they're a fun genre that I would love to continue seeing as sort of like a comparison to like a mid-budget production or yeah. something like that. Were you ever a Poirot fan? Yeah, and when I was right, yeah, when man. I was young, like yeah, I read a bunch of Agatha Christie stuff. Probably I was too young to read that stuff. Honestly, it gave me nightmares. Girl, no, it's extremely <laughs> loved it. I read too many books. I definitely should not have been reading at the age I was reading them. <laughs> No, I mean, but but like same. Like I love the the misdirects, the red herrings. I I love the mm. fact that everybody is implicated. Um, yeah, and then it's always someone that you you didn't know who it might be. So, saying that though, we're coming <laughs> up to it. Who, yes, who do you think did it? So I'm gonna guess Jasper, played by Jen Schwartz. Uh, ben Schwartz. Okay. I agree. It's like very much a thing where it's supposed to be like okay, the person you least expect, like the person who is. You know, this personality might say one thing, but, you know, actually he has a deeper motive and is has a, quite a different character underneath that. So, yeah, we're, we agree on Ben Schwartz. We uh, agree on Jasper, yeah. It's funny because, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that it might be him just because mm-hmm. we're we've been given clues and there are things that don't seem to add up. Uh, The camera footage being deleted is something that was such a convenient thing. And he was, he's the AV guy. He's the AV guy. Yeah. I think in terms of like stakes, he's got the most to win. Yes. Yes. Um, from this person's death. Yeah. I hope, I hope it's Walt though. (laughs) Like, I hope it's the guy that nobody ever remembers. Uh, that would also be be a good twist. Yeah. 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 And maybe like finally, uh, well deserved this criminal mastermind. Just before we go, I just want to give a huge shout out to Everly Carganilla. Uh, she was in the chair as the kid in the chair who we, again, like, no wonder she's familiar. She's, one of my favorite child actors of recent time. So shout out to her. Wow. Good for you, babes. I hope okay. you keep getting roles. You deserve it. Yeah. Sweetheart. And it looks like she's going to be getting a lot of screen time in the finale because that episode is supposed to be from her perspective. Yes. So we will see more from her. I'm uh, very excited. Later this week. Yes. So for culture this week, we have decided to just do a little cultural grab bag of everything on TV and film because there is so much on TV right now uh, and we can't get to all of it. So we'll do a little quick little grab bag for you guys to to just keep you updated on what we're watching, maybe some recommendations, maybe not. So before we get into all of that, though, we did have a reader request. Shout out to you, Christine Wu. Uh, They requested Annihilation as just something for us to chat quickly about. This is a sci-fi movie by Alex Garland, who also did Ex Machina and Devs on Hulu. So it's based on a book written by Jeff Vandermeer. This is one of my favorite sci-fi movies, I think, of all time. Uh, I think I brought it up when we talked about Station Eleven because it kind of really falls into that like nature aspect of sci-fi and futurism. Which, you know, as an earth sign, I really, it really appeals to me. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think you can pretty much get this on almost, almost every streaming platform. Maybe you have to pay a little bit of money for it, but I really recommend it. It has such a stellar cast and it kind of sent me psychologically spinning. Uh, which is what I love about sci-fi because it is, again, we love existentialism. It gets really weird, but in a in a really fantastic way. Other than that, what have you been watching on TV lately that, you know, to throw into our grab bag? Yeah. One thing that I am enjoying right now is the series Somebody Somewhere on HBO. 
So this was actually a recommendation from a listener, another listener, Rafi Kam. Hi, Rafi. And yeah, hi. Thank you for bringing our attention to this. Um, so this recommendation was given on the basis that I really liked uh, driveways. And I talked about that um, on a previous episode, which was uh, written by Hannah Bose, Paul Thurin. And they actually went ahead and created somebody somewhere as well. Mm. Yeah, so it's another kind of, like, very slice-of-life type of thing. Yeah. The finale airs on Sunday, February 27th, I believe. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it has been renewed for a season two. I'm looking forward to watching and probably talking about it during uh, its season two run. But, yeah, Yeah. very much, like, sort of a small-town kind of thing, like, working through everyday grief and relationships and friendship and sort of life sort of aimlessness um yeah but in a very touching comedic way at yeah. times so yeah, yeah. I, i'm liking that and yeah i'm enjoying it too i think bridget everett and jeff hiller who play sam and joel are mm. like the strongest things yeah. about this oh, um, i'm loving jeff hiller in this he's so good <laughs> i love him so much <laughs> um it, it, like you said it's definitely slice of life it's a very chill watch like it's not high drama so it's super heartwarming yeah yeah and what's next for you in our grab bag, Colin? Uh, so I'm going to talk about something that I really didn't like. Okay. Um, Inventing Anna on Netflix is, mm-hmm. I watched two episodes and I really hated it. As someone that is a Shonda fan, like Shonda Rhimes fan, I get why she has done this format with this. Uh, and this is obviously, this is the TV adaptation of the article written in New York Mag about Anna Delvey slash Anna Sorokin. Um, who was like this New York socialite that ended up like scamming a bunch of, uh, well, quote unquote, New York socialite that ended up scamming New York high society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, uh, this is just not working for me. Like, I don't care about the perspective of the journalist that's writing this. I don't care about the perspective of the lawyer that's handling her case. It's like mm-hmm. some kind of like career drama, which is Shonda's bag. Don't get me wrong, but I don't it's think it not, works in this format. Yeah, it's not that interesting like we are interested in anna (laughs) and like everything that she did leading up to this um i guess maybe how to format this because we have the most availability to the journalists and we can like sort of get our writers to craft that like maybe that was the appeal but i i agree and and i don't like the the girl bossification of no (laughs) this whole thing and i think my my annoyance with it is that we don't really have that many answers from anna's life like the real anna Mm-hmm. Um, so I get why they leaned more into that because they couldn't really kind of fill in the blanks with this real yeah. person's actual yeah. life. But then it's like, so then don't do it. So then don't make it, uh, based on a true story drama. M- maybe just be heavily influenced by it and make a completely yeah. new character up. And it's influenced by Anna Delvey, but it's not actually her. Yeah. Because then that way you have fiction on your side and you can make this shit up. Like, if you don't have the fucking... I, I don't know. I'm just annoyed with, like, all the based on the true story shit that's been I know. We have too many, too many like, very recent in history adaptations lately. And it's all, like, tech shit as well. And it's like, for fuck's sake. All right, okay. Um, But, yeah, this, this, just, this just didn't work for me. So, how about you? What's next for you? I'm... Also going to shout out a thing that I didn't really like. We'll shout out um, the dubs. Yeah. Let's go. So, The Gilded Age, HBO. Um, 
Woof. It's. I think I stopped watching after maybe four episodes. Oh, that you gave it a go. I gave it a go because I do. I did like Downton Abbey in like a really perverse way. Like Downton Abbey was pure high society drama. This is just like so boring in comparison, and it's supposed to be kind of like the, you know, on the frontier of uh, New York and American. I don't know development or whatever. Like the yeah. uh, Robert Barons and like uh, everything like that but it's just so it's boring the lead is one of meryl streep's daughters she's she's not very good in this the only plus is seeing carrie coon uh because she's she is quite good in this like she she brings a lot of the charisma but everything else is sort of just like actresses of all time yeah yeah no i mean that i really wanted to watch it just for her because i was like fuck me it's been a minute since i've seen Mm -hmm. carrie coon on screen uh yeah no this <laughs> is just not working maybe just like mate. purely fast forward to her parts um, yeah but yeah Do you know she was eight months pregnant she was yeah she had um someone on twitter was asking like why why is carrie coon wearing the ugliest dresses yeah on why does she look like shit basically yeah. she was and like she, well she replied yeah she was like well i was eight months pregnant <laughs> yeah <laughs> um <laughs> love that for her but yeah unfortunately this is kind of a dud so far i don't think i'm gonna pick it back up or continue to, speaking of things that did work for me though okay and are working for me, yes <laughs> uh on hulu you can watch single drunk female which is a half hour i guess comedy about a young woman that is trying to figure out her life with her alcoholism basically um it's just really working for me i'm just having a great time i think the lead is played by sophia black delia um she is a star baby she i hope she gets so many more roles uh coming up but i'm having a great time this like set in boston get some cute little boston accents going on i love a story about a woman much like somebody somewhere that has to like be in her hometown and like figure her fucking shit out uh and this is this is a version of that so i highly recommend it it's a fun time okay cool i'll check it out yeah and then for me uh, yeah pivoting to a wreck this time uh i'm finally getting into righteous gemstones yes which yes 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 it, yes, it took yes. me a while i don't know why i but now i'm in it and i <laughs> am just starting season two and season two is like wrapping up basically the day we record this on sunday mm-hmm. so i don't think we'll be able to talk about it in the media future but i think we can probably plan to talk about it in season three. Oh yeah because it's renewed um, right yeah okay. it will have a yeah. season three so Excellent. yeah and a lot of people comment on like the parallels between this and succession like they're all about you know siblings who do want to succeed their father in their father's empire yes. um it's quite different in tone the satire elements but it is like mm-hmm. just as good in a lot of ways uh yeah very will, fun it's it's very fun very funny in between the lulls of righteous gemstone seasons i highly recommend also watching another danny mcbride production called eastbound and down which is also on hbo max um, oh. i personally think eastbound and down is funnier than righteous gemstones it got cancelled a while back but mm. uh get into yeah. danny mcbride danny dude. mcbride is having danny a he's having a moment like there's more appreciation for him i think yeah. circulating around right now he is so. like to me he is like distilled american comedy like he yeah. is the best of american tv comedy yeah so shout out to him man yeah shout out to him and yeah catch up on the righteous gemstone so you yeah. can tune in to us whenever we talk about it for season three i think yeah but yeah that's uh that's basically us this week if you are watching anything that you think we should check out please let us know at criticism is dead at gmail.com 
You can just at us or DM us at Criticism is Dead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram for extended show notes from my dearest Jenny. Uh, thank you so much for sorting this. <laughs> she throws in links. She throws in memes. She throws in shit that you should be reading. Uh, developing your comedic mind as well as your intellectual mind. Shout out to wow. you. Wow. Please subscribe to our Substack, uh, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We request only five stars. Otherwise, don't bother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, tell a friend about us if you feel so inclined. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny G. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.